Welcome to The Lead, a podcast where we learn how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did. I'm Charlotte Northworthy. In this episode, I talked to Jamie Kalis, a freelance reporter who has contributed to publications such as the New York Times Magazine, Wired, Savoir, GQ, the Sunday Times of London Magazine, and on websites like Eater and Vox. In this episode, we discuss everything you can't Google about freelance writing and how she never sipped a Coca-Cola until she was 24. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast was created by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership as a part of its Innovation Fellowship Program. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Now, here's the lead. So thank you so much for being here, Jamie. She flew all the way down from Queens, and she's here at the Grady College today telling us all the things that she can't, that we can't Google about freelance writing. But before we jump into that, I'd love to talk about your background. Uh, you've been freelancing full-time since 2015-ish, but before that, you did things other than writing. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so first I was born in 1992. <laughs> uh, we're going way back. We're going way back. Okay. Uh, then I, I grew up in high school. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, so like an hour north of Philadelphia. I got into blogging right around the time that a lot of people were using Blogger and WordPress to start their own like independent blogs. I think that's how a lot of people in my cohort of journalism got into doing this is I wrote this blog called The 17 Magazine Project, which was like a sort of lightly sociological experiment about teen magazines. And I followed all the advice of uh, Seventeen Magazine for a month and blogged about it. And that's kind of how I got into doing journalism because that got picked up and went like lightly viral. I think at the time what it meant to go viral was a lot more reduced. Um, But so I wrote that blog and it was sort of successful and popular. And through that, I got a gig at Rookie Magazine, which is an online teen magazine that no longer exists. And that was kind of my entry into the journalism world. With this 17 Magazine project, you were just a teenager. And you, you know, you said earlier whenever you were presenting to Grady that you didn't really think that you'd be doing writing full time. So at what point was this just an experiment, a hobby? And when did that translate into full time work? Well, I mean, it still very much feels like an experiment, but... um, I would I would call it full time like it started being the main source of my income in 2015 and definitely all the way through college. So I went to University of Chicago and my undergrad is in English, but I don't even think that was on purpose. Like I started off as a sociology major. I didn't like doing the math. So then I switched to English because I already had some English credits and I ended up with it's in English with a specialization in fiction writing. So I think when I graduated college, I didn't really have a lot of hope that I was going to do writing full time. Um, It seemed kind of improbable, like maybe going into college, it seemed cool. But then by the time I was out, I was like, I need to be realistic in the world. And then I would do a little writing on the side, but I I was starting to get into doing public relations and like uh, copywriting. And I was like, well, this is like a more pragmatic option. Like I hadn't really like here you guys have a lot of like journalism training in college, but like my English department was much more like literature So coming out of college, I didn't have any understanding of how the journalism world worked or like how someone comes to do magazine writing or blog writing and just kind of stumbled into it by accident through blogs. So I would say 2015 is when it started seeming like it could be possible. It hasn't really stopped feeling like an experiment yet. So with freelance writing, kind of walk through, uh, you know, for those who don't know what the difference is between just a standard, you know, hired on writer versus a freelancer. Can you talk about sort of how you have to be your own best advocate and you are in charge of yourself? Yeah. So uh, 
like a regular staff job at a publication is like you get a salary. So like say like your entry level job, you're going to get forty five thousand dollars a year and it's going to come in a paycheck every two weeks with the taxes taken out and you're going to have an editor and they're going to help you figure out what you're going to write. Maybe you're going to pitch. Maybe they're going to assign it to you. Um, if you're a freelancer, you don't really have a job, at least not in the eyes of the government. You're just a person doing work and getting money. So you don't get a salary. You pitch your stories to whatever publication you want to. When you get the paychecks, there's no taxes taken out. You pay those taxes yourself. Um, so it's pretty much like on paper, I have no job. And then when it comes to the end of the year, I look at all my uh, where I worked for the year and I pay taxes on that money. And it's tons of different publications. So maybe in a given year, I might write for 20 places versus it's a lot less stability than having a staff job. But it's also a little bit more freedom, a little bit more flexibility in an industry that's not that stable. Um, so I really like it. I don't think it's for everyone. It gives you a lot of freedom, but uh, it's not for someone. I mean, I am very anxiety filled, but I don't think it helps me have less anxiety because I never know where my paycheck's coming from. So I'd love to talk about your story that I read, the 24-year-old Coca-Cola virgin. Uh, and that was from 2016. And I was shocked and giggling the entire time that I read it. So for those who haven't read it, it's a story about how Jamie never tried to Coke until she was 24 and was on deadline and this story sort of it came magically so can you talk about that thought process i had never had a coca-cola before partly just because it seemed gross and i just never had it and it was sort of one of those stances where it was like it was just a part of myself like i just never had a coca-cola like i'm against it um and then at some point it started becoming like an affectation where i would be like oh like i would never do that and then I think as you get into writing for like, maybe I was like two years into like a year and a half into my career at that point, I was like, wow, I'm really gonna have to come keep coming up with stuff to write about. And one of my editors, Matt Buchanan, he had been my editor at a small blog that didn't pay very well, the all and he moved to Eater, which is like a pretty good uh, food site at um, Vox. And he is from Georgia. So he has a lot of thoughts about Coca-Cola. And he took me to lunch and he said, hey, like, do you have any food ideas you want to pitch? And for some reason, I was just like, oh, like, I think this would be like good for us to work on together. Like, he's someone that I think really understands the kind of writing I like doing. So when I said, hey, like, I want to write this essay about drinking my first Coca-Cola, but I want it to be more about like, sort of like mass produced food and what it means to have like these kind of mass produced commodities. And like the through line will be me drinking the Coke and like, what the perfect way to drink a Coke is, but also it'll deal with things like how Coca-Cola has manu manufactured that idea of a perfect Coke and all these different sort of like random threads that I wanted to weave together. And I knew that my editor, Matt, would like understand that because one, he like cares a lot about Coke and two, he's just someone I've like worked with a lot. So I knew we had, could have like a good working relationship to make this essay possible. And it ended up being like, I don't know, maybe 5,000 words on drinking one Coca-Cola, like literally just one bottle of Coke. Um, and it was really enjoyable. I mean, I, I think it was one of those stories where once I started working on it, I like knew what I needed to make it happen. And it was just like an enjoyable experience. It was a real hit, which was nice. Cause like, you never know, like sometimes you'll work really hard on something and then people will be like, okay, interested in it. But like this one really just hit something. So it was good to be like, oh, this like weird idea that I had that I thought might be good. Like it actually worked out. Like it's very satisfying when that happens. And the story was nominated for a James Beard Award. So can you talk about, I guess this is more of a philosophical question, but what, is, what, what it means to you to be sort of honored for your work, especially when it's such a personal uh, assignment? 
so I feel like like a lot of people, I like, grew up in the generation of like getting trophies for everything as a child. So I was joking to my friend like a year into freelancing full time. I said to my friend Brendan, who Brendan O'Connor, he's also a reporter. I said, I really just want to win a prize for something. And he's like, shut up. Like, it's not about winning prizes. Like, you're not a child anymore. And then I actually got nominated for this prize and it was so exciting. But it was kind of interesting because the food writing world is a little bit siloed from like the general journalism world so like food writing is very like like prestige in this way where it's like the same people have written for like food and wine magazines since like 1980 and like they write long features about like oysters or whatever and it's just very interesting like so to go to this award ceremony where like people were winning prizes for like best cookbook and like I just felt like such an outsider but it was so fun to get to be in that world and like I didn't win but like I didn't really care because I was like oh this is like like, I don't do a lot of food writing. So I just kind of stumbled into this. And it was really fun to get to go to the awards. A lot of fun to kind of, like, stumble on these new corners of journalism just by way of, like, following my own interests. What what has been the post-Coke so, Jamie, <laughs> if you will? <laughs> so after I had that first Coke, which was, like, a full sugar Mexican Coke, then I found out about Diet Coke, which is great because, like, you can have as much as you want with no consequences. So for about one summer... I was drinking a Diet Coke or also I'd never had a Dr. Pepper. So then I had a Diet Dr. Pepper and I drank one huge one every single day pretty much from 7-Eleven. And then after that summer, now I think I have a more healthy relationship where it's like, I would say like once a month I have like a Diet Coke. To kind of pivot to a completely different uh, facet of yourself, I heard you're currently working on a novel about smoking. Uh, but that's that's pretty much all that I know is that you're working on a novel about smoking. And one thing that I'm really interested in is not only what the novel is about or what you can say thus far, but also sort of the the tone that you're approaching it with because your writing style is so you know quick witted and lighthearted, um, or it can be. So is this are we going to be able to to expect that same thing in this novel? Or are you taking just a totally different voice? Yeah. So I started working on this novel like it's about smoking. It's like sort of it's like a dystopian future kind of story about a time when smoking is illegal, but there's a historical preservation program for like cigarette culture. So they enlist these different people to smoke cigarettes as their job. It deals with themes of like work versus leisure and smoking a little bit in 20th, 20th century history a little. I would say like the writing style is pretty similar to like most of my nonfiction where it's like a little bit discursive and goofy um, but I, I've never really written fiction outside of undergrad, so I'm totally just figuring out how to do it. Um, it might never turn into a real book. Like I, I have to, it turns out like, so I have an agent, but when you write a nonfiction book, you can outline it and then sell it and then write it. But if you write a fiction book, you have to write the whole book before you sell it. So I'm just chugging along. And if I ever finish this, I feel pretty good that I'll be able to sell it, but maybe not. Um, so I'm totally winging it. It feels like a fake project, but I've been working on it like a couple hours a week at least. When did you start the project? Uh, I started making notes for it when I was living in Los Angeles. So probably like a year and a half ago. And I've been working on it somewhat seriously since November. Right now I have about 20,000 words written. So it's like it's, a, it's turning into a draft. A novel is apparently like 40,000 words or longer. So it's getting there. It, it could turn into nothing. Um but I would, I mean, working at like a book length is so much different. It's like you can't look at the whole project all at once. Having something to counterbalance like journalism work, which like 
increasingly feels like my real work. Like when I first got into doing this, I was like crazy. I get to write. Whereas now I'm like, oh, I got to turn this in on deadline. And like, I have all these different stories. Like it's nice to have this other project that I'm working on. That's like just for me. There's no rules about what it has to be. I can honestly quit at any time. I'm trying not to quit. Yeah, I don't know. It's like it's been a lot of fun. So we'll see if in like two years it's a book. Well, don't quit. I look forward to following that journey. So to talk about your your teaching that you mentioned earlier, you travel around the country teaching writers or aspiring writers what they can't Google about freelance writing. So without spilling too much of your juicy details that you are asked to come and speak at universities about, what are some things that our audience specifically, which is student journalists, should know about freelancing? Yeah, so I think the main thing you have to think about when you're pitching stories is that editors and writers have a little bit different priorities. So a writer obviously wants to do great writing that's going to like connect with a reader, uh, maybe tell a story that hasn't been told so much or tell a story in like an especially interesting way. An editor, on the other hand, is really trying to find stories that fit within the scope of their publication. And they're trying to find writers that will make their life easier. So that might not be the best writer. It might just be the writer that files on time has clean copy, is nice and courteous. So a lot of what uh, comes into pitching is trying to figure out how to reconcile these two priorities. So it's how do I sell the idea of the story that I want to write in a way that's going to make the editor interested in it? And I think that's just a process of like really thinking about like what does an editor want from a story and how can I connect that to the story I want to tell? How can journalists protect themselves while freelancing? I can only imagine how difficult it must be, or at least it was whenever you're first getting into it, to navigate contracts and agreements and taxes and what are these various documents. So how can journalists sort of learn how to take care of themselves in that regard? Unfortunately, the answer is like there's not really great ways for journalists to protect themselves when they're freelancers. Like a lot of the protection you get comes from working with a publication who's going to like have resources to go to bat for you, have fact checking, whatever. Um as far as like how I think about it, uh, it's never going to hurt to have a big cushion of money to fall back on. Like if you can work another job and save up maybe like six or seven thousand dollars as a runway to get started, that's going to just like buy you some time to make mistakes. Like every minute you're not making money is that costs you money essentially. So it's like having enough of a cushion that's going to say, hey, like I'm going to have room to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. That's a huge thing when you're starting off because you're going to have to figure out the system that just works for you. I think also like, I mean, as far as taxes go, like put aside a third of the money you make. It's You can always spend it later if you don't have to pay it to taxes, but it's, it's hard. But at the same time, if you have a staff job at a publication in today's journalism world, you could be laid off at any time. It's not inherently more stable. So I think each different way of going about having a writing career has its own upsides and downsides. I like freelancing. I like to be my own boss. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a nice life. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, as a freelancer, you have to be your own best advocate. Like you have to get yourself out of bed. You have to maintain your own schedule and your own structure and you have to be very organized and diligent. So in those instances in which you have blocked out time and you're on a deadline that you've established for yourself, how do you overcome writer's block? Like you can't come up with the ideal lead or you can't get this word count right. How do you overcome that when you are your own boss, if that makes sense? One of my main strategies is I, I call it fake writing. And when I sit down to work on something, I'm not working on it. I'm fake working on it. And that's just like write anything down on the page like you can get out there because I find that it's like I can always edit something bad. It's coming up with the initial set of words that's really hard. So when I set out to do something, I just write the, the worst version of the draft 
soon, like as soon as possible. And like, I just put like TK quotes, like TK analysis of this. And like, I don't really do any of the thinking. I just make a frame. And then once I have the frame, I find it's a lot easier to just go in and sort of like, uh, like go through my transcripts and put in the facts I want to have there or like rewrite the sentences to sound nice. Like I really try to make a strong foundation of the information. And then I try to make prose be the last thing I care about. So I go through it at the end and then I make it sound like me. Also, I think um, if you're on deadline and you see your deadline a week away and you are feeling like you're not going to make it, push the deadline then. An editor doesn't really mind if you move your deadline if you give them enough advance notice. If you're doing it last minute, that's when it becomes annoying. Like I, I try to just avoid an all-nighter at all costs. Like If I see a week down the road that I'm already going to be late and I, I start knowing what that looks like, I'm like... I'm just going to ask for the extension now because I'd rather like not create stress for people. Cool. So as a final question, you, you've had experience working with students here recently. So what is a main chunk of advice that you would offer to students who may or may not be considering freelancing or can't get an actual staff position job so they have to support themselves in, in other ways? What have you found is, is the biggest piece of advice to give? I think really be patient with yourself. Like I have a couple friends that are like 23. I'm 27. They're like 23, pretty close to out of college. And a lot of them I think are really stressed right now. Like I remember being in that same place and feeling that same way. And like, I just, I wish I could make people cut themselves a little slack. Cause like a lot of things just take time. Like even if you know what you want to do, it takes time to put all the things in place. And a lot of like your goals are relying on other people answering their email or getting back to you or like you intersecting the right opportunity at the right time. So like if you can just learn to have a little patience with yourself, I promise you that like if you're putting the work in consistently, then like something will work out. It may not be the thing you think that you're that is going to work out, but like you have to be a little trusting that like your hard work is going to pay off. So I think at that point I almost sound I'm like a little bit religious in that sense where I'm like I do think like if you take righteous actions in the world, it does pay off in the long term of like putting new opportunities in your life. Wow, that sounds very new age. Wow, that was a great way to end it. Well, thank you so much, <laughs> Jamie. I really appreciate you being here. This was awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, this was really fun. And you can do writing. It takes time to figure out, but you can do it. I believe in you. Thanks for listening to The Lead. I'm your host, Charlotte Norsworthy. This episode was produced with guidance from Keith Herndon, director of the Cox Institute at the University of Georgia. For more episodes with interesting media leaders, subscribe to The Lead on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Until next time.